Thank you again so much for joining us for this meeting, um, Modern Discourses on Race and the Catholic Understanding. And I actually first encountered David's work about nine years ago. So I can tell you right now, if you have not had the opportunity to see what he's done, it's truly amazing. He has a master's in Catholic theology from the Ohio Dominican University and Dominicans is a great sign right there off the bat. You must know that. He entered the Catholic church in 2006. He's a, both an established speaker and writer. Some of his books include the Catholic Catechism on Freemasonry and the Divine Symphony, an exordium to the Catholic Mass. And he's got a very active YouTube channel right now with, I think, several videos coming out a week. Um, and you can find it under his name, David L. Gray, and his series is Talking Catholic that he's currently doing. And the topics are very wide, very broad, from the liturgy to topics like we are discussing today with several guest speakers. And if you want more of what you see tonight, you can definitely log on there and see that. And he didn't request any compensation from us tonight, but I think we all know that these presentations take a lot of time, a lot of effort, and a lot of work. So I would encourage you, if you've benefited from this, to purchase one of his books or to send him a donation to him and his family to really support him in the work that he does here. Uh, I think all of us love to be freeloaders and get as much things as we can. Um, but definitely support the people in the church that are helping us and really bringing this to light. And again, all these links are in the event page, so you can easily find them there. And with that, I would like to turn it over to David to start his presentation and anything else you'd like to share with us about yourself and your family. Awesome. Thank you, Rose. I appreciate you guys um, having me. Um, I really didn't go through this speech um, much, so I don't know how long it's going to be. Hopefully it is 45 minutes, so um, we'll find out. <laughs> but um, as you see, I do have a PowerPoint slide, so I'm really going to hit a few points here. But I really like to begin this conference just by uh, thanking you for inviting me, for Rose, to uh, for organizing it, and um, the Raleigh Young um, Catholic young adults for your desire to really engage in this topic and to converse about how it is that we can speak Catholic about racism and the current racist and anti-racist movements that are um, present in the United States today. I love that this topic was one of the things that really most interest you because it is, it is an important topic. And I think that it is vital for Catholics to figure out how it is um, how we can engage in the in these conversations. So, um, as Rose said, you know, I do have a book called The Divine Symphony and um, Escorting on Theology of the Catholic Mass. And so the liturgy, um, th that's really the main work I've been engaged in for the past few years. Um, I ended up getting a, a master's degree in theology because um, after our um, my wife divorced me. I was civilly married, you know, right out of college. You know, we, um, we, you know, the moment I met, we met in college. I was an agnostic back then. And uh, we were very compatible back then. She was an agnostic. I was an agnostic. I really didn't like Christian girls. I thought Christians were just kind of stupid, right? And so um, after I became a Catholic, that really became a point of departure for us. So she ended up divorcing me. It was a civil marriage. And so it was something I was able to get annulled and uh, move forward. But, you know, after you get divorced, and you're kind of like, okay, what do I do with my life now, right? And so um, I thought I was going to become a Catholic priest. So I went to started, you know, going down that path and I still had young children. So um, 
um, the vocation director recommended, well, go ahead and get your master's degree now. And by the time your, your youngest daughter is 18, then you'll be able to enter a seminary, you both get through faster, you know, uh, so on and so forth. So, so yeah, I started on the path to get a master's degree. Uh, first, I went to Franciscan University, Franciscan Steubenville University, started there and they ended up at Ohio Dominican. Um, along the way, I met my wife. So that kind of cut off the whole priesthood thing, right? And uh, <laughs> so, you know, what do you do with a master's degree? So I was, you know, I was teaching high school for a while and then I started St. Dominic's Media. So that's, you know, what I, that's really the main work I've been doing now with St. Dominic's Media is um, I've been engaged in over the few years in developing conversations and structures by which Catholics can better learn how to know, love, and pray the liturgy, pray the liturgy of the Catholic Mass. And by creating within themselves a way by which we can hear and read the liturgical sense of the scriptures, that is, because the Mass brings to us the fullness of salvation history, the scriptures also communicate to us salvation history and also bring us the fullness of the liturgy. And together, the, the, the liturgy and the scriptures demonstrate to us how to live our life. To have a heart of the liturgy means that you have become in the world, you have become in the world who you are during the liturgy. Like there's no more duplicity in you. That what I mean by duplicity, hypocrisy, is that sometimes, you know, the person who we are during the liturgy, you know, very pious, right? Um, you know, we're that way during the liturgy. But then when we get out the liturgy, sometimes we're just completely different people, right? And that's easy to be, especially during football season. You know, I experienced this, right? I'm this person, this pious person during the liturgy. I'm a lector, you know. But then I get home, you know, I might shout some explicitives on my television, you know, because my team isn't doing well, right? That's the sort of duplicity that we have to get away from that the liturgy wants us to be in the world who we are during the liturgy. So... And with this, it's, it's repeating, this repetition of standing and sitting and kneeling, praying and confessing and standing and sitting and kneeling and praying and confessing. The liturgy is not just for a moment or for an hour. Repetition, the, the every day, the every Sunday, the every holy day of the liturgy is to create a, a habit and to create a, a new person. And thereby the liturgy is, is forming us to be in the world, who we are during that hour or so during the Mass. And one of the principal ways in which the liturgy um, principal ways in which the liturgy um, that we fulfill that call of the liturgy is in our language, how we speak in the world. Right? And one of the things that the liturgy has been trying to teach us is that the words that we speak are more beneficial when we speak them in union with God. When we, when we speak words that he's given us to speak, uh, speaking to the Jews, you know, Jesus said it this way. He said, whoever rejects me and does not accept my words has something to judge him. The word that I spoke, it will condemn him on the last day because I did not speak my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and speak. That's from John chapter 14, verses 49 through 50. The Apostle Paul said it in this way to the church at Philippi. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, 
whatever is gracious, if there's any excellence, and if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Philippians 4, chapter 8. So truly, it it, is that same call. um, It it, it is that same call to um, to an elevated thought and language that the liturgy is calling and forming in us. So that is why the priest doesn't make up his own words or consecration or his own prayers during liturgy. No, he, he speaks only what Christ and his church has given him to say. Similarly, during the liturgy, we do not make up our own responses to the priest, right? That would be interesting if we did. I, I would imagine what we would say. But so we, we do not spontaneously, we're not like Protestants in that sense. We do not spontaneously shout whatever we want to, right? Um, to, to, we just don't just, I just shout out, you know, whatever, you know, um, this is a, you know, the mass isn't an, an effort of humanism in that way. We're not trying to celebrate human individualism. No, we speak only what the church has given us to say, because when we do, we are participating in salvation history. And with every, with every other, and we're speaking in union with every other Catholic who spoke those same things for the last 2000 years. And we are partaking in that same divine nature that made them holy. Therefore, when we become in the world who we are during the liturgy, there is a particular way that we ought to speak about things so that our words elevate the conversation into the divine. Rather than being a conversation um, that, that, that comes down into the pits of trivial profanities and disorders. As Catholics, because we have a 2000 year old language and a way to speak about such things as racism, the world is better off when we do engage in conversations um, on family and in in public life and policy and education with what I like to call a liturgical tongue. That is again, having a language that speaks in union with what the church has said over the last 2000 years. In the instant case, um, I think the, the, the first thing that we have to admit, and like this is just an, an outline of the talk is, is you know, is where we're headed. So um, so we're coming out of the liturg- liturgy and how we should elevate our language and then we'll work into definition of racism, the various forms of secular racism. Um, the benefits of Catholics restructuring conversations on racism, the challenges of Catholics restructuring conversations on racism, and the Catholic principle of solidarity. And then we'll have a quick jump into resources on Catholic teaching and solidarity. And then we'll um, then we'll open up some questions. But so in the instant case, I think the first thing we have to admit is that the conversations that the world pretends to have about racism these days are typically not conversations at all because they lack the quality of true dialogue, right? That is the, the mutual and open exchange of ideas and concepts, right? It lacks that quality. It's just oftentimes just people talking at each other, not, not really conversing. And so, and that's what we have. We have, um, what we have in place of true dialogue is accusations. They're not, they are not rooted in truth, but rather are rooted in emotions of, 
of fear and anger and rage and hatred and guilt. And, and pointless, and pointless is every conversation that is not ordered to discover truth, because that's all that matters. For when conversations are ordered to discovering what is true, ultimately those conversations will inevitably lead to the discovery of a person, the one who called himself the truth, Jesus Christ. So in this talk today, I will address um, the economy of racism, um, what, um, how the current purveyors of this um, toxic ideologies of, of race victimhood and the managers of this conversation, how they have done it a disservice. And finally, how we as Catholics must and should enter into this dialogue and give it dignity and resolve by ordering this um, important topic to the truth. A working definition of racism, um, this is found in the United States Catholic bishops, um, their um, pastoral letter on racism from 1979. And um, it states that racism is a sin, a sin that divides the human family, blots out the image of God among specific members of the family, and violates uh, fundamental human dignity of those called to be children of the same father. They say that racism is a sin that says some human beings are inherently superior and others are essentially inferior because of their race. They say that racism is, is a racism is a sin that makes racial characteristics the determining factor for the exercise of human rights. And I think that's really a really good working definition of, um, of racism. It is a sin. And when we as Catholics, when we when we speak of racism, we are not speaking to an emotional reaction or a political football or a trendy epithet to call whatever offends us as being racist. Now, when we as Catholics, when we speak of racism, we're speaking of a sin, a grave sin that demands justice from God. That's why we do not call out racism every time we are offended by someone or something has the sense of racism. Because to accuse a person of a grave sin without full knowledge is then to commit uh, the sin of slander against them. Again, racism is a mortal sin. Mortal sins are also called grave sins. By definition, a mortal sin represents a deliberate turning away from God and destroying um, love in one's own heart. Racism is the height of the sin of objectification. Racism is not a venal sin through which a a general um, absolution at the liturgy of the mass can remedy, rather as a grave sin, as a mortal sin. The evidence that one has committed a sin is that one, the actor, the actor, the person committing the sin, had full knowledge that the action was grave. And two, that the actor had full consent of the action. As Catholics, we believe that if one dies unrepentant of a mortal sin, that they do this sin immediately into hell after death. So for us Catholics, racism is serious. It's not an emotion. 
It's not a profit center for individuals and media um, conglomerates to make money off of by stirring up anger. It's, it's, again, it's not a political football to attempt to use as leverage to win an election every two to four years. Racism is a grave sin. And because it is a sin, it is also it also falls into that the list of things that that all human beings are inclined to. Right? We're inclined to racism. Like we're all inclined to all types of other sins. The Catholic Church teaches that due to humanity's original sin against God, all human beings now struggle to always say yes to God and no to Satan. And that all human beings struggle to practice the original virtues because we are inclined to sin and to delight in the appetite of sin. That being the case, the, the, the human experience has taught us that, that some individuals right, are more inclined to some sins more than others are. So, so this person may be more inclined to, I don't know, abuse alcohol, right? This person over here may be more inclined to unnatural sexual appetites. We're all inclined to sin, but depending on one's exposure, right? The environments in which they are raised or currently live in and the individual psychology, not everyone is inclined to the same particular appetites, right? So that goes with racism, right? One's exposure, environment, mental health, they make some individuals more inclined to racism than others are inclined to it. And it goes with any sin, gossiping a murder. Many factors, positively and negatively, contribute to forming um, or, or deforming one's own conscience. The various forms of secular racism. And again, I'd love to thank you guys for coming into this conversation and for inviting me, um, Rose. Um, yeah, I really can't tell you, you know, Rose talked about my my podcast, Talking Catholic, which I've been doing that format for, I think, for over a year. I don't know. Um, and I can't tell you how many people who I've invited onto that podcast, who people I'll call... Um, 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 what I like to call these people, I like to call them race baiting hustlers, right? Oftentimes they're they're black. Oftentimes they're they're black Catholics, and I invite them on, on my show. Okay, let's have a conversation about this because I don't I really don't agree that racism is the issue that you're making it out to be. But let's have a conversation about this. Um, there's some things I think we can agree on. There's some there's things I think we should converse about. But never do any of these people ever come onto my podcast to have a conversation. I think we're so much comfortable speaking in echo chambers where everyone agrees with us. You know, echo chamber, you you throw it out there, it comes back at you, you know, same language. And we have a propensity, I think, sometimes to be comfortable with echo chambers, you know, whether it's Twitters and whether it's the you know, news that we watch. We we tend sometimes I think we like to find people who agree with us and keep hearing that. But I don't think there's there's a lot of growth in that, right? There's how can you grow in the echo chamber? So yeah, so I've really again I invite you for thank you for inviting me on this. Um to spend some time for you tonight about this, this evening. So let's transition now and talk about the various forms of racism. As, as Catholics, I think, I think this is our starting point, our jumping off point to address racism in the world. That this understanding that we have that racism is a mortal sin. 
that's a sin that one that that has wounded humans we are inclined to, but one through which grace we can overcome. That is the basis of the language and the words and ideas that we that we can bring to elevate this conversation and not words and ideas um, which must um, um, address racism and all of its various um, secular, um, secular um, expressions, beginning with emotional racism. Emotional racism, especially which is of the belief that you are being harmed or harm is being caused to another because of the unproven or unsubstantiated belief that the perpetrator of the offense is a racist. It's just this, just this hunch that you have, this belief that you have. It doesn't have to be proven. It doesn't have to be substantiated. It's just this, this belief that you have that you're being caused harm or someone else is being caused harm because the, pepper, the perpetrator of the offense is a racist. Emotional racism is, is weighted down and grounded along the mainstream and majority rules that determine who's a racist and who's not. Regardless of any evidence to the contrary, the, the secular, sec, um, secular majority gets to determine which person or group is a racist according to their own subjective standards. That's it. For example, most recently, right, um, after Donald Trump said he was running for president as a Republican, he's a racist. Heretofore, he was not. His name was mentioned as a pop icon, um, an image of greatness in over 300 rap songs. People who support Donald Trump are racist. Police are racist. People who wave the American flag are racist. White people are racist. People who believe in immigration laws are racist. NASCAR fans, they're very racist. Republicans are racist. Again, without any facts, groups of people are lumped together in, in an objectified group of whoever does not agree with um, whatever you're, this, let's call liberal ideology is a racist. That's emotional racism, which is used by political racism um, to keep those who profess it in power. Political racism uses public policy to perpetuate racism by constantly insinuating, constantly insinuating it, especially during election cycles every two to four years, that racism is the number one problem in America. Diversity training, white privilege, both of which are codes for White people, you should feel bad and guilty by being born white. White guilt is a passive expression of white supremacy. It's a passive form of white supremacy, essentially the same thing. Both white guilt and white supremacy believe that they are better than black people, but the person with white guilt is supposed to, be, is supposed to tell the black person that, that they feel bad about it. White supremacy does not feel bad about being supreme. Other than that, they're essentially the same thing. Other ideo ideologies that and use the form public policy includes systematic racism, racial justice, Project 1619, calls for reparations for Black Americans, and Black Lives Matter, which as an organization, a 501c3 not-for-profit, is a self-declared communist movement. And as a mantra, Black Lives Matter, hashtag Black Lives Matter, is an agency geared towards reinforcing um, victimhood and Black dependency on, on the Democratic Party. I, don't, I really don't think that's a secret. I think most people by now know 
that the majority of Black Americans um, since for the last 50 years have strongly supported the Democratic Party. And there's a lot of mechanisms in, in place, primarily the reinforcement of Black victimhood, that you as Black people, you need um, Democrats to lift you up, right? This, 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 it's this web of, of stories that are, are very influential in, in the so-called, some sectors of the so-called black community that keeps them in place. But, um, but all these are, are types of political policy instruments that are used to affirm that there are two classes of people in society. There are victims, that is poor blacks and Hispanics, and there are victimizers. White people who are not woke and enlightened as liberal and, uh, and white people, um, um, victimizers are basically white people who are not as um, woke or, or enlightened as, as liberal ideologues. So political racism is engineered to perpetuate a class in, in race um, warfare and is, is reinforced by media in Hollywood. A white man gets killed by the police and it does not make the news, but a black man gets killed by police and it does. A video Karen goes viral for an offense caused to a black man, but a video of Shaniqua causing offense to a white man does not. That's political racism, which is, and it's also a profit center, which is primarily used to reinforce and to keep um, um, uh, the group in power um, to enter every debate ready to uncritically blame racism on every real or assumed in inequality in society. So the commonality between emotional racism and political racism is that both heavily rely on using the objectified grouping of, of types of people and the groups that they belong to, to tell the rest of us who is a racist and who is not. Such determinations of who is a racist and who is not is really antithetical to the Catholic understanding of sin and racism, which, which forces us not to look at the person, the actor, but rather the action. Because again, racism is a grave sin and sins do not belong to a political party, a race, a culture, or a pastime. Temptation to sin comes from the world, the flesh, and the devil. And it is no different with the sin of racism. So again, the, the Catholic understanding of racism is again, is really antithetical to how racism is being pushed out and managed by the purveyors and so forth. And this, this typo is just killing me. I have to fix it now. All right. So the benefits of, of Catholics, of Catholics talking about, the benefits of talking Catholic about, about racism. I have two reasons listed here, but I think there, there, there's three reasons. There's three there are really three benefits of Catholics entering into these 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 conversations on race through language that that narrows the conversation along the lines of sin and virtue. Right? When we when we there's, so there, there's really I think there's probably three benefits when Catholics when we talk about racism just along this 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 line of racism is a sin. Right. And we, when we enter into that conversation by, by bringing in the virtues that are opposite to the sin of racism. The, the first thing it does, it, it brings the conversation into 
um, a space that everyone can relate to, right? You may have you may have experienced this. I don't know, but the purveyors of the emotional and political racism will always tell a white person that they do not understand racism, or that they cannot have a, an opinion about it, um, and, and that they are disqualified from the conversation simply because they do not have enough melanin in their skin or or, or enough black culture on their resume, right? Everyone, but everyone has sinned and everyone has fallen short of the glory of God. And being that racism is, is racism is a sin, it is therefore something that everyone can relate to. And everyone can also relate to the virtue of solidarity and example of Jesus identifying with us. Right. So that, that's really the first thing we do when we when we turn this conversation away from emotional racism and political racism and talk about racism as a sin, now everyone can talk about it, right? No matter what you look like or no matter what your background is, because we all can relate to sin. And the second thing it does is that um, making a conversation, by making a conversation relatable to everyone, it, it deflates the agenda of the purveyors of emotional and political racism. When we elevate the conversation of race and racism so high, it's sort of like a balloon filled with helium, right? It just keeps going up higher and higher and higher. And just it just simply it's simply hard to bring it back down into the pits of the trivial and um, profanities and the disorders. So when we when we speak about racism, when we elevate it to speak about a sin outside of um, political emotional racism, you know, it, it the, we, we elevate the conversation, right? And the purveyors, because oftentimes they're post-Christian, you know, they're not, you know, they're not really, um, they don't really speak the language. Um, we sort of we take the conversation away from them, and I think the third thing it does is then again by by ordering things back to the divine, um, it holds out the hope that our words might be used by the Holy Spirit to really spark an illumination in our hearer's conscience. And so and the third thing, thing, third thing it does, because the conversation is out of their reach, because they can't bring in the emotional and they can't bring in the political into the conversation. And all they're hearing now is that, well, racism is a sin, right? And they're understanding why people can fall into it. And they're hearing solutions about grace and how we can overcome it together and how solidarity heals racism. Um, now, now they may, oh, okay, well, the, the Holy Spirit may use that as, as, as a spark of enlightenment. So I think those would, those would the, the three benefits are. So as we enter these conversations on race and racism with the full knowledge that there are only two things in this world. There is light and there is darkness. There is a light that came into the world, Jesus, and there is a darkness that is trying to cover um, the world make trying to make the world blind, and and there are those who are walking in light, and there's who are, who are blind, right? There's just this 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 distinction in the economy of these of these two things that are present in the world. So, the challenges of talking Catholic about racism, um, our desire to use our liturgical tongue to elevate these conversations is always complicated by those who are set on judging um, the world by how people are. Those who, again, look at the person rather than the objective, objective action. And it is true. I think self-professed Catholics over the past 1,700 years at least have, been, have done some of the worst things in the history of the human world. Um, 
of, of the world. Um, self us Catholics. I think if you, I mean, you think you look back in history, well, when that person was a Catholic, well, self-professed Catholic. Um, so that that's sort of co- that complicates us entering conversation. And and there is no evil that our brothers and sisters have not done, including some popes. So that is a fact. And people always judge us for that, despite the fact that we should be judged by our saints, those who actually practice the faith. We're not. I mean, we should. We should. We should. Right. No other no other organization is judged so harshly by those themselves, by those who call themselves members of organization, but did not actually follow what the organization teaches. And it's sad. I think as Catholics, we should be judged by our saints, not by our sinners. But that's how we're constantly judged by by bad Catholics. Those who actually not by those who actually practice the faith. So to the contrary. We're always judged by those who are not faithful to the dogma and example of Jesus Christ. And it's very unfortunate. So there's just something we have to overcome. And that's a challenge. For example, despite the fact that Pope Pius, you know, we're just talking about history, things people bring up. You know, Pope Pius II declared slavery to be an enormous crime. He called slavery an enormous crime all the way way back in 1462. Yet we are haunted by the fact that um, eight and 10 years prior to that, Pope Nicholas V twice promulgated that perpetual servitude of Saracens and pagans in Africa was perfectly fine. Despite the fact that Gregory the, the 16th, very powerfully, um, more powerfully than any pope before or after, condemned the slave trade in 1869, we are haunted by the fact that many American bishops who were themselves slaveholders, reinterpreted his condemnation. And a few decades later in 1866, Pope Pius IX affirmed that subject to conditions, it was not against divine law to um, for a slave to be bought, sold, or exchanged. Although Pope Pius IX then turned around 22, laters, 22 years later and condemned the slave trade in a way American slaves were treated, we are haunted by the fact that in 1838, um, the Maryland Jesuits sold off 272 slaves um, to plantations in Louisiana, the proceeds of which went to pay off the debts of Georgetown University, which would not even admit a black person as a student until the 1960s. So I think the world should have a healthy skepticism of the Catholic contribution um, to various arenas. but. As Catholics, we have we have to be prepared for these battles because it is us. You know, it's, it's you know, a lot of people are in RCA now, you know, we're about to come up on Easter. Um, you know, we talk, we start to talk a lot about confirmation, you know, and it's us Catholics who have been sealed with the gifts of the Holy Spirit through confirmation, namely um, wisdom, understanding, counsel, fortitude, knowledge, piety, and uh, fear of the Lord. That's us. And it's, it's especially that gift of fortitude, which gives us the, the courage to engage in a world that, that is more and more inclined to see evil as good. As confirmed Catholics, it's not only our, our calling to spread the faith with our words and actions, but it is our duty to push the, the, the political space to embrace the common good. Some might say, well, um, we should keep religion out of politics. 
No, that's not really the Catholic understanding. The Catholic understanding is that because public policy is a moral exercise, it is a Catholic duty, it is the duty of Catholics to influence and educate those who craft public policy. We have to educate them in morality and moral theology because policy is a moral exercise. Same with law. So again, any area where um, self-professing Catholics have failed, if not for, if not for them, you know, um, you know, I think about the, the the Kennedys and other Catholics, you know, during the 50s and 60s. Um, you know, they, they, they were being taught by a number of, of Jesuits, I forget the guy's name, but they, they were being taught that they could separate what they called their, their personal or private faith with what um, public policy from whatever public policy they advocate for or against. They can separate those two things. They can be a, a, a Catholic in their pri private life, a faithful Catholic, uh, a devout Catholic, as they like to say, in their private life. But in public policy, they didn't, have, they didn't have to embrace those things. So this is why you have so many Democrats embracing positions that invade against the Catholic Church. They were told by some clever Jesuits that it's okay to be duplicitous and hypocrites. Therefore, in as much as we as faithful Catholics must enter in these conversations and recast them along the lines of sin and virtue, our entry is oftentimes complicated by a messy history of popes and self-professed Catholics on this issue. So the Catholic principle of solidarity um, As a church, outside of outside of the liturgy, we do not spend a whole lot of time talking about sins. We just don't. We talk about a lot during the liturgy, like every other word in the liturgy is talking about some, you know, sin and 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 this and that. But most of our injury, especially in regards to pontifical documents, seem to be more inclined to um, address the sin but then to speak to the virtue that the sin is invading against. In the instant case, racism has been primarily addressed by the Catholic Church under the principle of solidarity. Opposed to solidarity, the Catholic Church has found that nationalism and racism have been the chief obstacles. Those are the chief obstacles of solidarity, of nationalism and racism. The principle of solidarity is defined as um, friendship, and um, social charity, um, Christian brotherhood. Solidarity is what Christ became with us. God became man, he became one of us um, in solidarity with us so that we might become like God, one with him in solidarity with him. And then just through solidarity with one another, being in one body with each other, that we can pursue the common good of all, solidarity is really a beautiful principle, right? Uh, the Catholic Catechism in, in, um, in the section on social justice speaks to this a little bit. It develops it a little bit, not develop it, and um, you know, organizes it and presents it. So it, it is often um, asked, um, I was, I've, I've been often asked um, a lot this year, if racism, racism is a big deal as the media is, is it the biggest of deals the media is making out to be? You know, a lot of people have asked me that question. And my response was, has been, um, of course, I think racism is a big deal because sin is a big deal. But, but the problem here is that 
it is once again that we as Christians, Catholic Christians in particular, in this era, we have really lost the battle in messaging. And that really has been our Achilles for thousands of years, well, hundreds of years. We've lost the messaging about what Christmas is about. We lost the messaging about what Easter is about. We lost the messaging on marriage and sex, St. Patrick's Day, St. Valentine's Day. We keep losing messages and the world keeps taking these things and, and twisting and making them profit centers. And we are, we are constantly losing battles in, in messaging and in managing the message. But if you truly desire, I think if we truly desire to reclaim the message on sin, on, 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 on racism being a sin, it begins with hammering home the Catholic teaching on, on solidarity. I think that's really the only way to, to take back um, political racism and emotional racism and racism being a profit center for the media to press is why we really have to recast it to the Catholic principle of solidarity. Christ becoming um, one with us, God becoming man so that man may become like God. And as a resources, you know, places where you can, I think some good jumping off points to really dig into what the Catholic Church teaches about solidarity. Um, one is Pope John um, the 13th, his 1963 encyclical, Peace on Earth. And let me bring this up. And, and he writes, first among the rules governing the nations between states is that of truth. This calls above all for the elimination of every trace of racism as the consequent recognition of the principle that all states are by nature equal in dignity. Each of them accordingly is vested with the right to exercise, to self-development, to the means of fitting to its attainment and to be the one primarily responsible for this self-development. Add to that right each to its good name and respect of which is due. He goes on, very often experience has taught us individuals will be found to differ enormously in knowledge, power, talent, and wealth. From this, however, no justification is ever found for those who surpass the rest to subject to their control in any way. Rather, they have a more serious obligation which binds in each and everyone to lend mutual assistance to others in their efforts for improvement. Also, Pope Paul IV in his 1967 Populorum Progressio, he says in, 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 um, in part, racism is not the exclusive attribute of young nations, where sometimes it hides beneath the rivalries of clans and political parties. Whatever heavy losses for justice at risk of civil war. During the colonial period, it often flared up between the colonists and indigenous population and stood in a way of mutual profitable understanding, often giving rise to bitterness in the wake of genuine injustices. It is still an obstacle to collaboration among disadvantaged nations and cause division and hatred within countries wherever individuals and families see the invaluable rights of the human person held in scorn, and they themselves are unjustly subjected to the regime of discrimination because of their race and their color. Uh, Rerum Novarum, Pope Leo the 13th in 1989, that's really the gold standard of um, 
what the Catholic Church um, believes about solidarity, the principle of solidarity. And he writes in part, oh, well, I guess I don't have a quote on that. But um, it's, it's really, it's a, it's really a rich encyclical. Um, that thing is really, if you want to get into a Catholic principle of solidarity, if, if you have not already, that's really the place where you want to begin. And from there, I think I think you're really you're really armed to really jump into these battles with these race baiters, um, and re, re, you know reroute the conversation um, about racism being a sin and the solution being solidarity. But one warning I would give is that the principle of of solidarity should not have us fall into with what I call what you know what a lot of many you know we. Many in, in, in um, these circles call a false ecumenism, false ecumenism. That is having friendship, um, social charity, and Christian brotherhood should not lead us into other sins such as apathy or indifferentism. Too often, Catholics are found pursuing this sort of off-brand solidarity that ends up devolving into some man-made unity, rather than the pursuit of God's um, catholicity. Um, or a God's universal oneness. God is the truth and God has standards. He does, he has standards. And, and we cannot compromise those standards just because we might like to sing Kumbaya or hold hands around Satan's bonfire. God desires for all to come to the knowledge of truth and our participation in God's desire to bring all to knowledge of truth should make us immune to compromising the truth for the sake of some fake embrace or shallow friendship decorated with cute emojis. So with that, um, I thank you all for your intention. And um, I think I did pretty good, right? Wow, 50 minutes, I can really ramble. So I guess we could open it up to questions now or comments. Fool me, we can't get fooled again.